Uh, hello, everyone. I am Adolfi Golapudi, one of this year's Indian co-presidents, and today we're lucky to have Professor Andrew Sandberg with us uh, in a collaboration with Policy Punchline. Professor Sandberg is the James Barton Research Fellow of the Future Community Institute at Oxford. His research primarily focuses both on existential risks as well as societal and ethical facets of new technology, particularly in the long term and regarding human enhancement. So before we get started uh, discussing, I just wanted to give you a chance to give a brief definition of existential risk, because I think many of our viewers will be unfamiliar with this term. Well, thank you very much for having me here. So normally when we speak of risks, uh, we talk about how likely they are and how bad the impact of the bad thing in the risk is. Existential risks have this particular property that they end something. And usually when I talk about it, I mean the end of humanity or something about equally bad. It's fairly common to hear people use existential risk when they talk about threats that might mean that an individual or an organization or even a nation might end. Uh, and I think that actually misses the interesting things that happen when we deal with the biggest existential risks. And of course, it's worth noticing that quite a lot of people are just using it as a general strengthener, saying it's an existential risk if our quarter result this year are low. I would say that's kind of totally missing the point. The interesting thing about existential risks is that they're kind of the worst risks that you could possibly have. And that leads to a lot of interesting implications. So just to sort of clarify the definition slightly, would you, for example, count, we're launching a lot of debris into space, and as that multiplies, we might permanently lock off our ability to exit the planet. This would not necessarily post an extinction threat to humanity, but it would prevent us from ever sort of colonizing other worlds. Would you classify something like this as an existential risk? So that is where we get to the interesting uh, border cases. So my definition is to some extent based on the, the old fashioned idea. Yeah, the worst thing that could happen to you is that you're dead. But this is not strictly true. It could also be that uh, you might get very sick and lose uh, functions like hearing and sight. That would permanently make your life less uh, good. You might still have a life worth living. It's just that it could have been so much better. And similarly for our species, if we forever lose access to space, our potential goes down quite a bit. So quite a lot of the people involved in existential risk, they would rather start out by saying, yeah, something that threatens the potential of Earth originating intelligent life, and either by total extinction or by reducing the potential quite a bit. Now, space debris are an interesting case because first of all, it would go away eventually. It might just take a very long time. So uh, from a long-term perspective, we might say, yeah, actually we just have to wait a millennium. That's sad, but we can manage. On the other hand, you might also say that millennium might be worth quite a lot. There is actually other risks that happen if you're on one planet. So even though the space debris itself is not an existential risk, it helps other existential risks. And we are probably going to find in our conversation that there are many risks that link to each other in interesting ways. And understanding those linkages is quite a useful way of both trying to figure out where threats are, but also what we can do about it. Yeah, and as to the linkages, I know that existential risks are broadly categorized into two categories. You have anthropogenic risks. So we accidentally release some sort of virus, uh, superintelligence uh, reaches a dangerous state, nuclear war. And then we also have extremal risks like supervolcanoes, meteor strikes, and so forth. Uh, 
Well, obviously, there might be things we can do to prevent anthropogenic risks. How do you think that humanity can, if at all, prepare for the extremal risks? Well, the external risks, many of them we have already fixed to a large degree. Uh, by spreading out across a lot of different continents, we're no longer vulnerable if there was a disaster affecting one continent. Many species are not so lucky. If their home island or home continent uh, sinks in the ocean, that's it for them. And in many of external uh, extreme risks, some of them you can evade by uh, just spreading out or going to other places. Some of them you might even pre prevent. Many of the current very big natural risks, we have no clue about how to deal with. Supervolcanic eruptions, for example. Yeah, we actually don't realistically have a chance of doing that until we can remodel Earth's crust at which point the anthropogenic risks from that ability might actually be much bigger. The tricky thing about the anthropogenic risk is of course, yeah, we are in a sense responsible for them, but that doesn't mean they're easy to deal with. In some sense, we could start, stop having wars uh, tomorrow just by deciding, ah, let's not do it. If all humans decided that there would not be any wars, except of course that it's a kind of implausible thing to think that we would not just because it's hard to coordinate people, but because many people have motivations that make it likely. And in many cases, we create these traps for ourselves. The Cold War was very much of a stalemate that uh, you, it was easy to get into, but rather surprisingly hard to get out of. And that threatened our species with extinction in order to further natural interests, which is one of the kind of the worst bargains you can imagine. Yeah, and to get into this briefly, I know there's a lot of concern about why should we even care about existential risks. If you add up, you know, like extinction is a pretty extreme event, as you, as you suggested, and given that we are both extremely spread out and have fairly resilient infrastructure, presumably the total risk of this happening in the next century, the next millennia, is under 10%. So why should we be concerned about this low probability event versus other very likely events that will simply cause losses in quality of life. Losses well, in quality of you, life. Yeah. Would you ever get onto an airplane if you knew there was a 10% chance that it would crash? Pretty likely not. And you probably wouldn't get onto that aircraft even if it said, oh, it's just 1% chance. It's kind of, yeah, I, I'd rather take the train or a boat or even not go wherever I'm going. Now, we can't avoid the kind of being on the existential risk airplane, but even rather small probabilities of something very bad happening can be absolutely too much. And there is something very interesting about the value involved in existential risk. So certainly you can imagine a disaster that kills a large number of people. That is bad for those people and everybody touched by the disaster, but life goes on. However, an existential threat uh, if it's an extinction threat, ends life. And a lot of things that we care about are contingent on this. So, for example, many people say justice is very important, but you can't have justice without people around being just. Uh, so in some sense, existential threats are also a risk against justice. Uh, some people might say, yeah, but uh, if nobody's around, nobody's sad, and uh, nobody's complaining about uh, justice because, well, it's not applicable, that's true, but it also seems to imply that uh, a lot of good values get lost. So now if you take uh, uh, a consequentialist perspective, we say a lot of value that could have been realized doesn't get realized. 
That's terribly sad. Uh, you might also say, well, there is a kind of intergenerational justice issue here. We shouldn't discriminate against future generations just like we shouldn't discriminate against spatially remote people. After all, time and space are on the equal par thanks to Einstein. So we should actually recognize that if we do stupid stuff now that really limits the chances of future people or indeed um, prevents them from coming into being, we're doing a tremendously unjust thing. Uh, so you can motivate the badness of existential risk in quite a lot of different ways both consequentialists and non-consequentialists. Samuel Schaeffer, for example, points out that many of us care quite deeply about uh, humanity continuing, even though it doesn't benefit us personally. He has this thought experiment where uh, you get uh, a choice. Um, either uh, after you're dead, humanity keeps on going, or uh, humanity dies out uh, 10 minutes after you die. And most people, of course, immediately say, yeah, I, I want humanity to continue going, even though, of course, there is absolutely no personal benefit. And you can tweak the thought experiment in various ways, but the conclusion is fairly clear. We do care about the project of humanity. Many of the things we do only make sense if we do it for future generations that we might never meet and might not even understand. Yeah, and I think that the deontological justification of a duty to your species is quite interesting because the natural way to justify existential risk, at least to me, is the utilitarian argument, that if you buy uh, the, the claims of utilitarianism, almost all humans live in the future, assuming there is not an existential risk event. And sort of on the point you were making before about how we're good at understanding the tragedy of small disasters, but bigger disasters are harder to understand. I was curious if you had noticed a change in the public's view due to COVID-19. It's one of the first large scale global events we've had, luckily in a long time, and obviously while it wasn't existential, how do you, do you, have you seen it affect people's views of existential risks, especially bio-risks? I think certainly COVID-19 has affected people's views, so maybe much less than it should have, but much more than uh, most arguments any philosopher could make to them. There is something the emotionally very powerful when you see empty streets, uh, when you actually uh, fear for your uh, close ones and notice that the statistics is uh, coming in from around the world about it's even worse in other places and so on. It's a shared global event. And I think that is very important because most of the time we have been sitting in our little uh, 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 kind of echo chambers. They existed long before we had the internet. The 1918 flu, which in many ways is a precursor of COVID, was also a global event, but most people didn't experience it in the same way because they couldn't actually interact with other far away. They couldn't see that it was affecting all communities at the same time. And now it's particularly poignant because many of us, when we normally locked up in our little communities and having our own experiences about whether that is our favorite computer game or some sports match or some political shenanigans, we're all forced to, to get into this larger space, but oh yeah, and we're all subject to COVID-19. We might be having loads of disagreements and problems with the whole situation, but we're all involved in some sense. That is unique. And I think we should treasure that and try to recognize. Then of course, the ability to estimate risk and think well about it is tricky. As is well known in risk communication, if somebody has experienced something, they think it's way more likely. If they experience something and weren't personally very hurt by it, they tend to downplay how dangerous it is. 
So many people who had a very mild COVID or didn't get it at all think, still think that COVID is like the flu. Well, of course, people who have family members who actually got it will know that mm, that's not true at all for some people. So the problem here is scope neglect, the inability of recognizing when there's so too many people involved uh, and uh, these various biases um, like accessibility bias, they make us have a rather warped uh, view of uh, the state of the world. COVID helps a little bit but it's still not a perfect lesson. And what I'm really worried is, of course, that as soon as we get sufficiently vaccinated and uh, we start thinking we have handled this pandemic, everybody will just want to forget it. That happened in 1918. Uh, everybody decided the flu was absolutely horrible. Let's go out and celebrate. And then within a few months, we have almost for forgotten that something had killed uh, tens of millions of people. There is a risk we repeat that mistake. But we can recognize that it was done in the past, so we can try to fight it this time. Yeah, and then in terms of fighting this sort of mistake, obviously for COVID-19 in particular and pandemics, there's a lot of money being spent on how to be more prepared in the future to not repeat the very, very specific mistakes that were made during COVID. But either on an individual level or perhaps a societal level, are there steps we can take to address other existential risks or is it mostly a matter of being aware and hoping they don't occur? It depends on the risk. There are some risks that you can just fix uh, by uh, setting up the right mechanisms. Uh, we could uh, monitor uh, asteroids and comets and uh, try to uh, deflect them if uh, something seems to come too close. Now, the probability of that actually being useful is relatively low, so it's probably not time very well spent which is sad because I love the planetary defense community and they are the ones that actually have one of the risks best controlled. And whenever I say that to them, they look very sad because they feel like we're underfunded and nobody understands them. And the total community fits into a large lecture hall. Still, uh, that is a risk we can manage in one way. There are other risks that are much trickier, but you can do specialized work on uh, like nuclear war. Uh, and then there are ones that might be emerging where we might not know perfectly well what to do, but we might have uh, uh, some good opportunities of fixing risks before they happen, like uh, uh, artificial superintelligence. The tricky thing is, of course, the most likely thing to do us in might very well be something we never thought of. So we also need to have this general ability to respond when something truly weird and surprising happens. And that requires something very different from having good telescopes looking for asteroids. Uh, it's even slightly different from the defenses we can do that work against many risks. I'm involved with the nonprofit AllFed that is looking at how to feed the world in the case of uh, really big disasters. And you can get uh, problems with agriculture both because of a nuclear winter and an asteroid winter and a supervolcanic eruption and uh, maybe because you get some form of plant pathogen, whether natural or uh, as a bioweapon. At that point, all these different causes channel together into the problem that, oh, you can't run normal, normal agriculture. But if you can solve that problem, like non-conventional food, like turning wood into um, something humans can live on, in that case, you can handle that risk. That's great. Assuming, of course, when the sky is dark and people remember that, oh, there was a plan for this. Somebody actually had worked out how to do it. We need to get the blueprints and start building the food factories. It's, of course, 
over-demonstrate. Uh, quite likely that many people make up plans and then other people drop them in the waste bin because uh, of politics. That's uh, kind of the failure mode that partially happened in America. It's very interesting to note that many of the failure modes of uh, governance we saw in COVID are different in different countries. So there is so much to learn from. It's kind of an expensive lesson, but we can learn from what happens when you have two rigid models like in Sweden. Uh, or in, uh, when uh, you have uh, the wrong organization for solving the problem, like in the UK. So the real issue is, of course, how do you handle the totally unexpected? And for that, you just need to have a rich, agile civilization that is able to notice that something is upright and then quickly reach a decision and then do something about it. And this, of course, sounds way more utopian than deflecting any asteroid. Because most of us uh, can at least imagine a technical solution for asteroids, but getting sensible governance, whoa. But we should remember that even the question that governance can be modified and improved is a relatively recent thing. Uh, people for most of human history have just assumed governance. Well, that's because some people are selected by God or just have the biggest armies, and that's why they run stuff. There have been some philosophers arguing that maybe it should be differently, but it's only the past few centuries we have actually experimented in improving governance, actually realized that, wait a minute, if we organize committees like this, they solve certain coordination problems. If we set up incentives like that, then people become less corrupt. We are inventing better forms of governance. It's almost like engineering, but it's involving uh, people and uh, laws and uh, a lot of paperwork, and I find it rather mysterious. And the slight complication that, like with uh, superintelligence, governance structures typically resist modification from the outside. Tremendously. Uh, and many of them uh, might have their own motivations that are very akin to many of the disaster scenarios we can envision for artificial intelligence. Uh, so whenever people say, yeah, we can totally control artificial intelligence, I start comparing them to corporations. And at least for people of a particular political bent, then it's suddenly obvious that, oh no, that's super dangerous and super risky. And of course, to people of a different political bent, I compare them to government. And then they go, oh no, they're so hard and dangerous. So the problem here is actually handling distributed uh, systems that uh, are self-modifying, that might be fairly intelligent, but might have goals that are either emergent or just pathological. This is a general, very big problem. And we need to work on that. But we can also work on the opposite problem. There might be specialized solutions that work quite well. There might be findings that help us decide where to go. For example, predicting low probability events is a fool's game. You can maybe calculate a probability, but uh, you can't really wait for it to happen or predict ahead of time. The signals are usually too noisy. But you can detect when it's happening in many cases, and then you can act quickly. So it might be better to set up a planning that, okay, here is a very well-oiled emergency management organization. We do regular tests. We keep them uh, running with various scenarios. When something happens, we're in charge of handling their crisis. That seems to be a sensible thing. On the other hand, hiring a lot of futurists trying to predict what the next disaster is going to be, that's mostly entertainment. Yeah, I wanted to, to briefly pivot because you just talk about food. You know, you've done a lot of work on animal welfare. I am personally concerned with animal welfare and I'm in fact a vegetarian, but you have these somewhat controversial take that I think, you know, some mixture of vegetarianism and in uh, lab growing meat might actually be a negative for animal welfare. And I was wondering if you would mind briefly summarizing that argument. 
Yeah, so so the basic question is, is a life worth living for the being that has it? Uh, and uh, if we, for the time being, uh, try to ignore the question for plants, it seems like there are some animals uh, in the current food production system that seem to have a pretty negative well-being. They might actually be better off there. But there are other animals that probably have quite good life. A friend of mine was studying food ethics and uh, concluded that, yeah, British sheep at least, they have life worth living. And they look like there's so good lives grazing around in the green and pleasant countryside. But the fact that they end up at the slaughterhouse, but in the end, probably doesn't nullify them. So in the, the, there is probably some positive to being a content sheep grazing on a, a pleasant hill. Now, if we replace all the sheep with uh, in vitro food, that might be great uh, in some sense. We might actually save the green and pleasant hills for other things. We might uh, get less risk of diseases, etc. But there would be fewer sheep lives. Now, maybe replacing the chickens, that might be an enormous net positive gain because uh, most chicken lives seem to be pretty miserable. Uh, but it seems like if we could replace a lot of uh, our uh, farm animals uh, with uh, uh, other foods, so, so there might be less experience in the world. Now, is this a strong argument that why we shouldn't be going for plant-based meat and so on? I don't think so. I think actually uh, we have been overdoing it with our domestic animals. Uh, we probably need to have fewer of them and they might want to have a much better quality of life. But I think it's worth recognizing that at least if you take this kind of utilitarian calculation into account, it's not always given that having fewer of these uh, beings is a better thing. I'm curious, just from a methodological perspective, it seems hard enough to understand whether a given human is happy and wishes to live their life. Approaching this problem for sheep or chickens seems almost impossible. And then once you add the complication of how do you weigh a life of a cow against the life of a chicken? What does research in that space even look like? Yeah, and different people end up with very different uh, principles uh, on how to judge this. I usually say that, well, most vertebrate uh, brains are alike, or at least most mammalian brains are alike. A mouse brain and a human brain might be very differently sized, but the overall structure and many of the key parts are the same. It's just that there is probably more going on in a human brain than in a mouse brain. But when in terms of, for example, a pain experience, I don't think there is a fundamental difference. It's uh, simply uh, the same system scaled up. The problem with humans is, of course, we might uh, appreciate pain in a lot more complicated ways. We might feel pain from things that are not physically painful, but because of general weltschmerz uh, or because we are unhappy, our favorite uh, sports team has uh, failed or something like that. So there are certainly complications, but it uh, seems to, uh, quite plausible to me that uh, my pain and the mouse pain, deep down the, on the kind of qualia level are probably very similar. Now, if you start asking me about birds, I get a bit more nervous because yeah, that their brains have evolved slightly differently. The overall layout is fairly similar. And I can certainly observe the behavior of a bird, a mouse and myself and see how we avoid certain things and behave in a practical way that seems to indicate that some things are aversive and we are motivated to avoid it. Things get even hairier, of course, when we get down to fishes or insects. 
especially down uh, in the insect world, I'm just uh, more or less dumbfounded. Uh, there are some structural similarities even between the fruit fly brain and the human brain in overall information processing and layout. But a lot of things are utterly dissimilar. So it's not clear what the kind of experience there is. You can do experiments, of course, trying to see, uh, do insects perform actions that avoid what we would call painful stimuli, etc. And there are some results that seem to indicate yes, but there are also other results that indicate it's not that easy. The, perhaps the most interesting example is octopi, where you have things that the skin can uh, see in color, but the brain only gets black and white information. The arms are more or less independent uh, and so on. The overall structure, what it is like to be an octopus, seems to be exceedingly different from what it would be to be a vertebrate. At this point, our intuitions are just no good. Just uh, to push back slightly. So I think I can perhaps buy that physical pain is a similar experience across various classes. And while, you know, while humans might be able to, ex to experience unique pains like heartbreak or loss of a loved one, perhaps you can draw some analogy there towards extreme physical pain and say it's a similar experience. And in fact, we know that severe physical pain can cause trauma and PTSD-like symptoms that are similar to you know, strictly emotional pain. But on the pleasure side, the pleasures I've received from things like friendship and learning and so feel far exceed any physical pleasure I've ever received. So it would seem as though there's some reason to argue that more intelligent creatures can experience orders of magnitude more pleasure and perhaps should be valued at a much higher level. Yeah, and there might even be pleasures that are in some sense lexically more powerful than others. Uh, there are qualities to them that doesn't exist before. Uh, an, an analogy I quite often use in my lectures is that we can imagine some monkeys considering to evolve into post-monkeys and arguing about whether this is a good idea. And they realize that mm, intelligence is instrumentally useful for getting bananas and bananas are good. So these post-monkeys are going to be great at getting bananas. Uh, so that's wonderful. So we should become post-monkeys because there's going to be more bananas. As post-monkeys, we humans, of course, realize bananas are nice, but then there is art, culture, religion, sports, philosophy, all these other things that the monkeys don't appreciate at all. Now, there are interesting shades here. Both monkeys and humans like sex. We make a way more complicated uh, the ideas about what, what it is about. We might be adding emotional things that are hard for monkeys to think about. Similarly, friendship certainly exists among monkeys and other primates, but we humans can, of course, make friendships in an even more deep and nuanced way. The core friendly emotion, I think, has the same uh, underlying neural basis. It's not that different. But then it can get very uh, fundamentally expressed in a very different way. Now, we might, of course, imagine post-humans going even further. And we might say, oh, we're going to be so good at uh, philosophy and sports and uh, that. And uh, they might be, have emotions that allow them to feel really good friendship. And the post-humans will say, yeah, yeah that's cute. Yeah, oh, we do like uh, bananas from time to time. But we have these other concepts you humans can't even get. And kind of, yeah, it's cute with spiritual fulfillment. Uh, but uh, yeah, there is better things. Now, that, of course, seems to indicate that it's very valuable to try to explore these higher realms, many of them which are probably empty. They're probably modes of thinking and being that are totally pointless, both from an outside perspective and an inside perspective. But there are other ones, we know that human, being human can be wonderfully good, that hint that there could be very valuable things out there that we really, really ought to be exploring. 
The tricky thing is, of course, what this does morally. Does that mean that those posthumans now hold even higher moral value than mere humans? Because uh, if one of those posthumans dies, well, all that friendship prime, that consciousness, super consciousness of whatever it was that was so valuable disappears. And it might very well be that, yeah, that has, holds a tremendous amount of moral value. But just like we might say that a mouse is a moral patient, yeah, it's not particularly smart, but uh, it does feel pain. It might feel uh, a bit of pleasure. We, we shouldn't be inflicting uh, pain and suffering on it unduly. We might actually have some form of system where we say, yeah, moral patienthood here is an important thing. We need to apply it to a lot of things out there in the world. It might even be that we need to think about ecosystems, even though the ecosystem itself doesn't experience anything. But there are many biocentric and ecocentric views in ethics saying that mm, they actually have intrinsic value regardless whether humans are around. But conversely, we have this challenge that there might be systems that have high concentrations of value. And that is, of course, tricky because we like to think that we are, of course, at the top. But that's just because we are currently the best embodiment of value. It might very well be that there are higher forms. There are countervailing arguments. Immanuel Kant, for example, he would say, yeah, actually, there is a kind of plateau. Once you're a sufficiently good, rational, uh, moral agent, you will figure out that my philosophy is right, basically. And then you're going to be able to figure out what to do. And all other beings, whether they're aliens or robots or anything, are all going to reach the same kind of conclusion. So in his model, I think, I haven't got to count around to ask, but uh, it seems like we all would end up on the super plateau. And it might also be something like uh, human dignity and human value. We might say, yeah, that guy in, in, is a gorgeous Nobel laureate and, and with a trillion dollars in the bank. And uh, that is a really rude, annoying beggar. Both have the same human value, but there is one of them that you might invite over for dinner and uh, more likely. On the other hand, maybe you should invite the beggar for dinner because he needs uh, some friendly interaction more. But the, those differences don't uh, overshadow the fact that both are humans that are worth kind of respecting as humans. So it might also be as we develop the world, because I think the world is getting more and more complex as evolution and intelligence are adding stuff to it. We might end up with more kinds of value that you need to take into account in your decisions. And this is, of course, going to give headaches to both us and the superhumans because more kinds of things you need to trade against each other, the more likely it is that you can't solve the constraint satisfaction problem. Straying near a perhaps dangerous topic, which I will avoid for those who haven't heard it. Uh, if we believe that there are beings that can uh, experience lexically more value than we can, not just maybe more or greater amounts, but lexically more value, do we then have a moral obligation to devote almost all of our energies towards creating those beings, either, either directing evolution in certain ways uh, or creating superintelligence artificially? Because uh, if they can experience lexically more value, then the, the slightest value they can experience is worth more than the sum total of human experience combined. Yeah, that is a really interesting question. And uh, I wish I knew a good way of answering it. And... I think quite a lot of uh, people would say, no, that's not really possible. Many would probably make an argument that is somewhat like Kant, and you have this plateau uh, of value and there is a top of that, and we are on that. I'm not so certain this is true. 
at one point in history, the universe was just plasma, and then we got a little bit of solid matter. But at some point, there must have been the first living being. And it seems to me that the first living beings actually hold lexically more value than all the rocks in the rest of the universe. Um, now, you might argue that maybe as a consequentialist, uh, I should actually say, yeah, actually, it's not lexically, it's just an enormous number. But that first bacterium was, in a sense, way more worth than the entire planets of rocks. Now, the interesting thing is, then you have a long history of those bacteria pro uh, proliferating until you get something conscious. And again, it seems like you get this jump. So at this point, why should we say, oh, yes, we are definitely at the top level. In fact, given how much future there is, it seems fairly likely that we could be further jumps up. That doesn't mean that uh, a beautiful planet or, or for that matter, a bacteria lack value, but it might be that most value get embodied in these high value systems, whatever they are. Does that mean that we have to seek them out? At this point, it's kind of interesting because I was talking earlier about that given how much value there might be in a post-human mode of being, we might have a good reason as humans to try to seek it out. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to seek out that lexically a higher form. But it seems like a very similar argument that it might indeed be that we should be trying to do that, even if we cannot actually ourselves achieve that value. Yeah, no, I guess this is a, yeah, there's a question of, it seems like searching for these, for these post-human beings is often exactly in the same category as inviting certain existential risks around, uh, around much, much more powerful beings and letting them in and assuming they're kind is a very dangerous assumption. Yeah, uh, and this is an argument be, that has been used, of course, against uh, trying to enhance humanity. Uh, so there are some people who, who've been uh, saying that, look, we, we can't allow genetic engineering because that's going to you know, lead to you know, superhumans, and then they're going to have a war against us humans. That is a rather bold geopolitical claim. I think if you want to get the United Nations, as some of these people have suggested, to ban uh, genetic engineering on these grounds, you better have a very solid case for why this is likely. But prudentially, of course, we know that, yeah, conflicts can arise in a lot of ways. Alan Buchanan at Duke has a very interesting analysis where he argues that you can have vastly different beings in the same society as long as you have a kind of overlapping cooperative core you are actually part of the same society, even though you might be in very different corners of it. The real trouble starts when you're actually totally separate, when you, when you don't need the others. This is, of course, why the European Union is the best peacekeeping uh, force ever, because you can't start a war in Europe because the paperwork would be too complicated. And we're all dependent on each other in crazy supply chains. And the same thing is, of course, true to some extent in a society. We're embedded in a matrix that is also keeping us uh, somewhat on the straight and narrow, much more than the police is doing. And I think the same thing might be true also for creating new entities. If you have a little black box under your desk that is super intelligent and has no interest related to the society of the world or human culture, that's a very dangerous super intelligent black box. It might try to achieve its goals at the expense of everything else. If, on the other hand, those black boxes are living in the Amazon cloud and are in a, engaged in various parts of human society and human business, at this point, they might 
maybe drag the economy out in the, stra out in the stratosphere in weird ways we might not like, but at least we are kind of getting dragged on in the same way. We still have a fair bit of problems here. In many ways, fears about post-humans and superhumans are fears about ourselves and our bad sides, which of course clearly point that maybe we want to fix those first. They might actually be rather good targets. So lack of compassion for others, hmm, that's actually something we would like to figure out how to handle in ourselves. If we could get superhumans that were super compassionate, that might actually be both rather scary and quite helpful. Figuring out better ways of regulating powerful systems. Hmm, we want that for our companies and our AI programs and our governments anyway. Yeah, although I guess, you know, I would like to think that I and most people I know are fairly compassionate. And yet, if, you know, an ant steps into my room, when I try to get it out, I am not trying to kill it, but I'm fairly unconcerned if I kill it. Uh, yeah. So there is some sufficiently large intelligence gap or, or capability gap, whatever, where it seems like even a non-malicious intelligence would probably not view humans as having much inherent value. And thus, you know, on the one hand, humans have been extremely good for the numbers of chickens. Uh, they've been extremely bad for the number of bison. And that feels like a fairly random decision. Yeah, and the chicken happiness is probably down. The average chicken in the world is probably less happy than the 100 years ago. So you could argue that the, sum, uh, the, the average or maybe even the sum of chicken hedonic experience has gone down mostly because we want cheap protein. And of course, we're paving over countless antils because we find it very useful to make roads or even do changes in the environment that in some sense is good for the environment, but happen to be very bad for that particular antion. Now you could imagine a kind of Jainist superintelligence, but actually really appreciate individual human value. And it's not like compared to it, humans are not worth anything. It's rather that it's scaled upward. So it's aware of all the irreplaceable things that are lost for every human. Could that still act well in the world? That's a good question. Uh, you could imagine that it could get totally paralyzed by trying to care for everybody and respect everybody and everything. It might also be that there are smart ways around this. I think in the end, any decision theory is going to involve trade-offs. And that is of course the scary part when you think that you might be the thing that is traded away for something else that is better. So this is also where I think it's rather important that we make sure that we're part of the emerging powerful systems. One interesting analogy is of course, what's going on uh, with companies. Companies today cannot run without humans. They're in some sense, artificial intelligence being run by brains, pens, and paper. Um, at the same time, many companies treat their uh, employees rather badly and might even be bad citizens, so to say, in the world. That was not deliberate, it's just, an accent, but you might also say, we could try to tweak things. So companies actually are nice places to work. For example, having a marketplace, that means that companies want to compete for happy employees or having rules on how they treat them. You might set up other forms of constraint. And I think we might want to do this also for the future superhuman systems, whether that are big companies or states or super intelligent man machine symbiosis or anything else. So we have a chance of participating. 
that's going to require a, quite a lot of research. It's going beyond mere value alignment. It's kind of game theory for uh, systems of entities of very, very different streams. Yeah. I know we, we got off on a, on a slight tangent there, but one of the, uh, one of the other questions that I wanted to, uh, to get into was uh, in terms of, of quantifying existential risk or qualifying it from a personal standpoint, not from a societal, from a societal viewpoint. One, as we've established that uh, the existential risk might not be as trivial an event as we think it is because, uh, you know, while I might have some 1% chance of dying in a car crash, if there's a 1% chance of an existential risk, there's a 1% chance that that kills me uh, too. But as individual humans, what is the way that we should conceptualize our relationship with existential risks? Yeah, doing it as an individual risk is actually surprisingly effective sometimes. Um, so there is this way of uh, visualizing uh, personal risk in terms of micromores, one chance in a million of dying. So uh, the, the, for example, I have about five micromorts a day risk. So I actually have in my office little poker markers with skulls and crossbones on it, five of them. Uh, so you can kind of think of your risk budget. Uh, now, if you uh, bike uh, a certain distance, you get one micromort. If you uh, do uh, something more dangerous, you might get a whole pile of micromort. The interesting thing about the, these ones is that it's much easier to visualize them when there's something concrete. And this is also true for bigger risks. When people think about pandemics, they usually don't think about the risk to themselves. They hear about uh, the Black Plague or things like that. And you envision it in far mode. You tend to use a high construal level and think about a scenario that would may maybe look good on television. But the real problem is, of course, that it's the near mode that guides your decisions. When you think about what am I going to do today? Am I going to risk uh, crossing the street uh, and uh, even though the light is red? That is a near mode decision. And getting that emotional investment of risk so you can calculate them or kind of feel the weight of the risk in your hand is quite effective. So when you start thinking about pandemics as, oh, how much personal risk is there in my lifetime of me dying in a pandemic? That's quite useful. I, very quickly, when the data started coming out for COVID, uh, started looking at, okay, uh, how risky is this if I got it? And I realized mm, it's not the end of the world, uh, most likely for me, but it's kind of, it's a really unnecessary risk that I should do a fair bit about. It's basically a doubling of my mortality rate per year. So mm, yeah, totally worth avoiding. And then of course, thinking about others. And this is where things get interesting you get a much stronger argument. And this is quite often where we fail when we do the math and philosophy. We talk about these nice abstractions, but actually when talking about existential risk, it's kind of important to point out, this is about saving your mother and, uh, and, uh, and her grandmother. This is about saving that little girl down the street. If an existential risk happens, that little girl is gonna get it. Uh, I sometimes have people saying, ah, I don't care about this. And then I give this horrifying description of the last infant dying somewhere. And, uh, and that was the last human voice ever. And then, of course, mold slowly creeps across the last uh, copy of Mozart's collected works. And that's it for that music. That's very concrete. And in some sense, it's a rhetorical, uh, slightly dirty tool. 
but it's also quite useful to realize the emotional power that, that does matter. It's a little bit like uh, Tibetan monks doing this death meditation where they imagine themselves dying and all the things supposing to happening. Whether that is a great way of organizing your life or not might be debated. But I do think it's useful when dealing with abstractions sometimes to turn them into something horrifyingly concrete. Then you want to be able to tune that back to, because otherwise you won't be able to sleep at night. You want that intermediate level where you realize this is stuff I can deal with in my life. This is stuff I need to talk about and do things about, but I don't need to stay up all night feeling I must work you know, to reduce the probability by even a minuscule fraction. Yeah, maybe I should, but I'm going to burn myself out in a few weeks if I did that. So there is a rational balance to be done. This is, of course, super tricky, and not everybody has the mindset of doing it in my way. But I do think turning risks into something concrete and being able to be then flexibly move between very concrete and very abstract, that's kind of healthy. I think this is how we should think about things like investment. It's useful to both care about your investment, but not caring too much. Yeah. After right. all, your the cryptocurrencies, they're just crazy numbers until you turn them into something you can actually buy. If you treat them as they were actually something valuable when they're up and they're in the cloud, you're just going to go nuts. Yeah, and I suppose that with the, with the micromorphs, there's this natural balance between I think most humans, at least in the abstract, would prefer 65 years well-lived to 75 years poorly lived. So there is some notion of, I, I enjoy rock climbing, for example, which while not excessively dangerous, is certainly not the optimal risk-avoiding risk way to get my exercise in. But it is it brings me sufficient other pleasure that is probably worthwhile. And I was curious what you thought about the broader existential version of this argument that uh, the things necessary to prevent existential risks, or whether that's you know significantly curtailing uh, oil consumption for climate-related risks, or investing significant amounts of money into planetary defense systems, or whatever else it is, uh, will reduce our current pleasure sufficiently enough that it is not worthwhile. Mm. Especially once you consider discounting future utility using you know, standard future discounting models. So it's worth noticing that no, there, nobody or maybe extremely few people actually get pleasure out of burning oil directly. It's always instrumental. We burn oil in order to power our cars or do various things, but it's those things that have a value. Very few people really care about oil. There is always somebody, but uh, it's just instrumental. But we can certainly imagine doing many things to reduce existential risk. We could curtail, for example, doing theoretical physics experiments in particle accelerators, because maybe, just maybe, they could make a black hole or a strangelet. It might be better that we never find out the fundamentals of physics than we implode the Earth accidentally. I think that uh, particular risk calculation doesn't work. We, we have good reasons to believe that particle accelerators are safe enough. But you actually need to do that calculation. You can't just assume it and turn it on. Similarly, we could imagine putting in a massive surveillance system so people don't brew up any bioweapons or a dangerous AI system. And if you do it right, that might actually be totally fine. Uh, you could imagine having bomb-sniffing dogs everywhere and bomb detectors in every room. And since most people don't get pleasure out of exploding bombs or making bombs, this would actually make the world safer and nicer. And bomb-sniffing dogs, 
they might bark if they detect uh, a bomb, but they don't tell uh, anybody else about the other parts of your private life. So there are forms of surveillance that are okay. But most of the time when you mention surveillance, we get this feeling of somebody, somebody creepy sitting in a control center watching you on a screen and probably making judgment about your life. That's why we don't like surveillance. Partially because even if there's nobody behind that screen, we might behave differently if we think somebody's surveilling us. And that is already impairing our ability to live a good life. So you could imagine some methods of reducing existential risk that actually are not worth it. They, because they themselves reduce our potential much. Sometimes you might imagine something temporary. If there is a crisis and everybody needs to do certain things, then maybe we can't allow people to dissent on that because we just need to save ourselves. Afterwards, let's apologize and make up for it, but we, then we have a future. There might be some situations where you evade an existential risk in a manifestly unjust way. Uh, there is, um, after all, this really bad movie 2012, I don't recommend it. And minor spoiler, it turns out that uh, they're funding the arcs to save humanity by selling tickets to the super rich for 1 billion euros a piece. And the main characters are of course horrified, but as somebody tells me, without that, we couldn't actually fund the arcs. And that gives rise to this interesting question. If justice requires you must exist, Maybe really unjust ways of saving humanity might be worth it. But then again, if you have a choice, if there was some way of saving humanity without doing the super unjust thing, maybe it's clear that we should take that one. So I think many of the trade-offs we need to do to reduce existential risk are probably not problematic. I'm kind of annoyed that many of the people working on climate change, that they think that the only way of getting the climate under control is making big sacrifices, individually and collectively. That might be true, but it's not an appealing message. It's not likely to convince people to, oh, then we need to do this. In fact, you might really want to research ways of becoming eco-affluent. You might want to make sure that the solar panels are so cheap that climate denialists put them up on the roof because they're not stupid when it comes to economics. So there are ways of getting around that that is both motivational and can create better human value. <clears throat> I think the real problem here is that often the first thing that comes to mind is usually not a very good solution. And then we tend to assume that, well, that's the only way of dealing with it. That's dangerous. The way of handling uh, people making bioweapons might be to put surveillance cameras in every room, but there might be much better ways. Uh, I think, however, getting back to your original phrasing, could there be civilizations that live short but have a life worth living? And yes, I can imagine civilization trying to do certain things and eventually failing but uh, still being very successful, we would say from an outside perspective, it generated a lot of value. It might have had a cohesive history, but in itself holds some important value. A civilization that just managed to scrape by and survive by dastardly means until proton decay and, uh, and it takes the last whimpering remnant, well, it might be long-lived, but uh, it might actually not have much of a life. It's a bit like my friends in the life extension world. There are some of them that are trying to avoid dying very much. And many of them don't enjoy life very much. I'm the other kind. I love being alive. I want to be alive as much as possible, but not at any price.
so there is an, uh, some limit and you want to kind of maximize the integral of pleasure or value across your lifespan. Some, some people are trying to solve that by having a low level that goes on for a very long time. Other peak up a little bit too recently. I think we can probably find trade-offs that move much further. And of course, there might be values that are more non-consequentialist in nature. It might be that we can talk about civilizational virtues, but maybe there are virtues uh, of foresight uh, and creativity and other things that are important even on a global scale. It's not just that we individual humans have them, but we can say that our societies and our history express good virtues. And in that case, it might be that some ways of evading existential risk might be bad for those virtues. Again, this is going to be a tricky thing, of course, because if we find disagreements in ethics about virtue in individual humans, just think about the disagreement about civilizational virtues. So going, going back briefly to what about surveillance, it feels like two of the biggest anthropogenic risks right now are bio risk, where we accidentally release something awful, or maybe intentionally, and then AI risk, where we accidentally build something too powerful to control. And the problem with both of these risks in preventing them is it would not be that hard for a disgruntled postdoc or assistant professor at some suitably uh, high tier lab to sneak out smallpox. It would be hard, but not much less hard than maybe you would hope it would be. And while no one has built superintelligence yet, there's nothing to suggest that a superintelligence won't come out of someone with a couple thousand dollars worth of computing equipment, and it might not need supercomputer levels of compute. And perhaps a full, a full surveillance system might prevent this, but that level of surveillance seems almost tyrannical, especially on the computer science side where it's quite democratized. Is there even a point in trying to prevent these sort of existential risks from a prevention side rather than a responding to them once they happen? Well, that depends on uh, both the severity of the risk. And I think uh, one can make a good argument that actual existential risk might be so bad that we, we actually should rationally accept uh, quite a lot of uh, restrictions on what we might do. At the same time, in practice, controlling what everybody is writing in terms of code, that's a non-starter without having some very extensive software that is reading because you can't actually have enough people reading that code or we have to make do without doing very much coding, which is also not going to fly. At that point, you end up maybe needing quite a bit of AI to avoid the other AI, and you're ending up in a who watches the watchman situation, which is tricky. I think in many cases, our best defenses uh, can be relatively subtle. During the Cold War, the red phone between the Kremlin and the Washington really reduced the risk of accidental nuclear war. Of course, it's not red and it's not technically a phone, but the fact that the leadership could communicate quickly in a crisis and it would be very hard to interrupt that, that reduced risk quite a bit. It's not a perfect solution. It still doesn't help if one of the leaders is not really sane, but it does help to some extent. And we can do a lot of these partial solutions that get risk done. And many of them have surprisingly small trade-offs. When it comes to bio-risk, it seems that probably biotechnology is the best solution to many of the bio-risks. Putting up surveillance systems in every room to make sure nobody's doing biotechnology is going to be tricky. 
On the other hand, we probably want a global disease monitoring system. We probably want to make sure that every smartphone has is constantly sequencing whatever it finds in the air and uh, kind of uh, gives you a little bing if it notices something that you probably don't want to breathe in. And of course, it notifies the CDC too. But at this time and place, I noticed this really worrisome little sequence. If you can pull off that kind of system, we could actually improve things both against natural and artificial threats. There are various technical solutions to making biotechnology safer. And I think we should pursue them with gusto. One of my favorite concepts is differential technology development. There are many technologies that can be foreseen to be risky and dangerous, but there are other technologies that make them less dangerous. For example, you could in principle foresee that if you're driving around a car and you crash into something, that's dangerous. Seat belts reduce the danger. So if you invent seatbelts as quickly as possible uh, when you have cars, or even better, before you have cars, then suddenly cars are no longer as dangerous. And this, of course, goes for many of the technologies we're talking about. Uh, alignment uh, the system, systems to make artificial intelligence aligned with human values or say, other forms of safety protocols can be developed before we get to powerful AI. Uh, geoengineering uh, might be a, a risky option for handling climate change, but it seems like we can reduce the risk if we had a good way of mopping up stuff in the stratosphere. So that stratosphere cleaning uh, the system, that's something we probably should be putting a lot of research funding into getting long before anybody actually starts thinking seriously about geoengineering. So I think changing the order of technologies can quite often solve things in a way that also doesn't mean that we need to do a horrible trade-off. If the trade-off was the privacy versus the survival of a species, I think, okay, privacy can go. We have actually survived quite well without privacy for a long time. But there are other things that you probably shouldn't be throwing out the window. There is a point where you might say, actually, at this point, we might want to accept that risk. You mentioned mountaineering earlier, and I think it's a beautiful example of a risk that is worth taking. There are some risks that are worth taking, probably not existential risks, but for example, a risk that uh, a major research project fails and doesn't find anything, or an attempt at colonizing the moon and it fails. Well, it was still worth, maybe worth doing if we had the right intentions, etc. There are many great things that will fail in the future, and that's kind of all right. We just want to make sure that it's possible to keep on going after the failure. Yeah, certainly. And I think that's, that's possibly a good place to, to wrap up a little bit. Uh, thank you so much for being uh, with us here today, uh, Dr. Sandberg. Is there thank you a, for having me. This was exciting. Yeah. Is there a final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with about the nature of existential risk and what they can be doing to you know, conceptualize their own place relative to these risks that abound? It's actually quite fun to do the little calculation of looking at mortality tables uh, and then comparing various probabilities of things and trying to see, okay, is nuclear war above or below that kind of cancer I got worried about uh, yesterday? That's uh, the morbid thing. You can also, of course, go out and just go in nature and look at stuff that's been around for a long time. Beetles, for example, have been around for hundreds of millions of years. They survive really well and they're not terribly smart. There is hope also for us humans, I think. And we can actually see that there are many systems that are less intelligent than we are, that still have tricks to survive and actually exist in a good way. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you, cheers. 